Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Monday, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor, we're going to trial. Simone Misick is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench. Everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, Monday at 9, 8 central on CBS. Hackers are after your business data. I can help. I am Vi, the virtual intelligence assistant at Virtual Armor. Virtual Armor, partnered with Juniper Networks, provides cybersecurity services and end-to-end solutions to keep what's yours, yours. Defend yourself with managed firewall and managed SIM essential core services that are economical and efficient. Virtual Armor goes beyond just initial alerting to provide a thorough report on threats, vulnerabilities, and results. Let me help protect you. Contact me at JustAskVi. That's V-I dot com. And here we go. My opponent is against oil, guns, and God. I am the Democratic Party right now. 47 years, you've done nothing. Everything Americans value hangs in the balance. We have an obligation under the Constitution to use every arrow in our quiver. This is the most important election in the history of our country. I believe that. This is Devious Motives with Brett Winterbull. I'm Brett Winterbull. You're listening to Devious Motives. Welcome. Uh, this is an incredible time to be alive. You know, we're about 102 days out for the inauguration uh, of the next president or, or the re-inauguration of the president, President Donald Trump uh, of the United States. We are about 23 days away from the election, except if you're talking to Kate Bedingfield, who's the spokesperson for Joe Biden's campaign, and then she'll she'll tell you that, that no, no, the election is happening now. The election is happening now. Stand by for a special comment on the election happening now. Um, but let me start with this. Amy Coney Barrett, the confirmation hearings underway today. And uh, it's it's the usual sort of uh, uh, ugliness and vitriol. I'll play some clips for you. The most vile comment, though, certainly goes to um, the, the typically loony Macy Hirono from Hawaii uh, d- declaring that uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett was was uh, presided over a super spreader event at the White House. Which, okay, COVID is spreading. That's correct, Maisie. Very good. Yes, people have the COVID. Um, But you you guys have already blamed the uh, repeal of Obamacare. You you have tried to blame the repeal of gay marriage and also the repeal of the right to use contraception on Amy Coney Barrett. I'm not going to do the super spreader event uh, is Amy Coney Barrett's fault. Uh, She was nominated by the president, invited to the White House, spoke to the folks, and uh, that's that's how it goes. And by the way, you guys have have, have created this brand new sort of a, a gold standard of, of victimology. You might want to go and check uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, as it relates to COVID. You might find something very interesting about uh, Amy Coney Barrett and uh, uh, COVID because uh, Amy Coney Barrett actually, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm pretty sure I'm not, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, actually had coronavirus this past summer. She had COVID. So if the new metric for victimology 
in our con- country and in our culture is is the people who suffer from COVID. Why don't you show a little respect there, Maisie Hirono? Why don't you show a little respect there, Chris Coons? Why don't you show a little respect there? But that's not going to happen. And I'm going to tell you why. Because typical of the people we cover on the Devious Motives uh, podcast, these people have multiple standards depending on how they apply. Um, Let me go in chronological order, though, and then I'm going to go in the Wayback Machine for you. Chronologically, uh, on Sunday, quite quite something spectacular occurred as uh, Jake Tapper, somebody who I, I, I typically attempt to avoid like a super spreader of, of non-truths. Uh, Jake Tapper had Kate Bedingfield on. Now, Kate Bedingfield is, is literally the face of the Biden campaign. It's not Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. It's not Biden-Harris-Biden or Harris-Biden-Harris. It, it's, not, it's not those two. It's Kate Bedingfield because she's the only person you ever see go on TV to clean up the messes in, in aisle six and aisle seven and aisle eight, and aisle nine. She, she, she reminds me of a courtesy clerk. I was a courtesy clerk once at a uh, supermarket. And so I, I understand how hard the courtesy clerks work. But Kate Bedingfield, you got to clean up some serious messes. And what's even better is that Jake Tapper actually called you on your nonsense, which tells me he may know something about Biden, Harris, Biden, Harris, Biden, Harris. Uh, losing this election because of the way he's trying to take her to task. Check this out from Jake Tapper on CNN. How can it be? But he said it's not constitutional what they're doing. How is it not constitutional what they're doing? His point is that the people have an opportunity to weigh in on this constitutional process through their vote. And we are now in the midst of the election. Millions of people have already cast their votes. And you see that the vast majority of people say that they want the person who wins the election on November 3rd to nominate the justice. That's to a take poll. That's seat. not the Constitution. So by, by trying to by trying to that's that is their con- there, there's the constitutional process of advising consent. The American people get to have their say by voting for president, by voting for senators. We are now 23 days from the election. Right, but it's not Again, unconstitutional. Millions of millions of votes, millions of votes. They're being voters are being denied their constitutional right to have a say in this process. They when elected the Republicans the Senate. are trying to ram through are trying to ram through a, a nominee who, by the way, is going to change the makeup of the court. And we see time and time again, poll after poll shows that most Americans vehemently disagree with this. They again, believe again, Kate, that's that the poll. vote should happen on November 3rd. That's not what the word constitutional that is means. Con- that constitutional is the- doesn't mean I like it, it or I don't like it. It means it's according to the U.S. Constitution. There's nothing unconstitutional about what the U.S. Senate is doing. Of course there isn't. But but in the world of a guy like Joe Biden, anything is cool as long as you can justify it or you can uh, uh, utter it including court packing, that he doesn't want to talk about because then we're going to be talking about his position on court packing, which is all we seem to be talking about from uh, over the weekend. You heard it in the uh, in the podcast episode. So look look at what Kate Bedingfield is, is saying. Kate Bedingfield is saying uh, this is unconstitutional. People are voting. So the way you would want to block any judicial nominee from ever getting on the bench or, or at the district level, at the uh, appellate level, and of course at the Supreme Court, would be to immediately on January the 21st, 2021, immediately begin voting in like Wyoming. Just open the voting in Wyoming for the 2024 campaign. And because there's voting going on, it, it means that you can't seat new judges or justices, which is absurd. And we agree on that because that's not the case. You still have the current sitting Senate that was elected in the last election back in 2018, discharging their duties. 
and the duty that they're discharging right in front of you, live on TV, the discharge is everywhere. They are discharging their duties to confirm Amy Coney Barrett as the next Supreme Court justice. But Amy Coney Barrett is guilty of something, um, and it's something very serious. She's guilty, of course, uh, as you know, of, of not being uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's what she's guilty of. She, she is guilty of not being Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg uttered a dying wish, a last request, that the seat be held open until the next president was sworn in. That's quite something. The next president was sworn in. So we're going into January 20, 2021, which means that, well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg could have been running a defensive posture to try to try to protect the under assault Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, right? Because it's on the docket this upcoming session here in October. So what are we doing? We're just politicizing the third, the Article Three branch of government, aren't we? Which is really essentially what it comes down to. Amy Klobuchar, with the desperation throw of the day so far, and yeah, I know Kamala Harris talked and is talking and has things to say, and crazy Maisie Hirono is saying things. But check out Amy Klobuchar, the failed presidential candidate, Amy Klobuchar, who failed to be given consideration as a, a V-POTUS. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, who's still frustrated by not being successful in 2018 when she referred to Brett Kavanaugh alternately as as a rapist and an alcoholic, even invoking her own father's problems with alcohol. It was a really ugly scene. But here's Amy Klobuchar trying to deploy the mob against the Senate to stop this travesty of justice. Listen. Let me tell you a political secret. I doubt that it will be a brilliant cross-examination that's going to change this judge's trajectory this week. No, it is you. It is you calling Republican senators and telling them enough is enough, telling them it is personal, telling them they have their priorities wrong. So do it. And it is you voting even when they try to do everything to stop you. It is you making your own blueprint for the future instead of crying defeat. So do it. This isn't Donald Trump's country. It is yours. This shouldn't be Donald Trump's judge. It should be yours. Here's a quick tell how you can determine that Amy Klobuchar knows she's on the wrong side of the argument, and it's, 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 it's a very serious thing you can notice. She gets the shakes, and she gets a wavering voice, and she just gets really, really angry. It's theater. And so what she's telling people to do is pick up the phones, jam up the phones, call, call the senators, call the Republicans, and tell them that this is not Donald Trump's country. This is not their country. This is your country. The people power. Well, we've seen the people power in the street, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of the second cousin to Antifa. But that's not even the craziest thing that was said today. The craziest thing that was said today was, was from crazy Shelley Whitehouse. Uh, Shelley Whitehouse, uh, if you were to think of uh, somebody who was the embodiment of privilege, it'd be Shelley Whitehouse. You read his Wikipedia entry. It's fascinating. He traces his roots like all the way back to, uh, to the 1600s in Rhode Island and the plantations uh, therein. And, and, and Shelley Whitehouse, he, he, he decides because he's from a, a seafaring state. Uh, he, he decides he's going to invoke the imagery of 
sea-based warfare and Amy Coney Barrett. Let's listen to this little number from Shelley Whitehouse. I would pay money to have somebody get him to say Waskily Webbit. Listen, here is uh, Shelley Whitehouse. Check it out. The Supreme, this Supreme Court nominee has signaled in the judicial equivalent of all caps that she believes the Affordable Care Act must go and that the president precedent protecting the ACA doesn't matter. The big secretive influences behind this unseemly rush see this nominee as a judicial torpedo they are firing at the ACA. If I only had the manpower and wherewithal and desire to create a montage of nothing but analogies and similes for the Amy Cody Barrett confirmation hearing, Maisie Hirodo calls her a super spreader. Shelley Whitehouse deploys her as a, as a judicial torpedo aimed right at the ACA. Reality is, there may be parts of the ACA that, that could be fixed in a constitutional fashion if people decided they wanted to try to take that into the Congress and the Senate. I mean, there are ways uh, by which you could fix the ACA. Look, they keep talking about pre-existing conditions getting blown up. Some Republican, any Republican, please just get anybody. I don't even care who it is in the House side. Just introduce a bill to enshrine in law that pre-existing conditions will, will, must be respected by insurance companies. Just, just put that in a standalone law. Just do it. And then see Nancy Pelosi not pass it and see it not go to the Senate and not get ratified. But we, do, we, we have ways of doing things like this in this country. Chris Coons, I, I, I featured him in the prior podcast. What a, what, a, what a bad, bad man Chris Coons is. I, I don't know him. I just, based on his performances, based on his uh, laudatory language in 2018 about Brett Kavanaugh's a nice guy and I worked with him and he seems like a good guy, but I'm not voting for him because he's an alcoholic racist. Uh, racist, rapist, racist, it's all the same. Here's uh, Chris, Coon, Chris Coons talking today in the morning session of the ACB confirmation. Here's how that sounded. Judge Barrett, I'm not suggesting you made some secret deal with President Trump, but I believe the reason you were chosen is precisely because your judicial philosophy, as repeatedly stated, could lead to the outcomes President Trump has sought. Hold on. Is that all Chris Coons has? That he believes that Amy Coney Barrett was selected because she aligns with the things that the president agrees with? So that's why Obama appointed Kagan and Sotomayor? Are you telling me that presidents pick Supreme Court justices that represent their sort of thinking of things? Oh my gosh, stop the presses. Captain Obvious has a front page scoop. Chris Coons is a silly, silly man. We're going to talk to somebody straight ahead, though. Who's not a silly man? He's a serious man. He's going to unpack for us the polling in this campaign, and I'm going to get him, Spencer Kimball from Emerson College Polling, to give us an explainer of how all this stuff works. It's going to be awesome. We're going to answer a lot of the questions that you walk around asking yourself or talking about at the kitchen table or talking about with your buddies on the golf course. I'm Brett Witterbull. It is Devious Motives. You're listening to Devious Motives. You're listening to Devious Motives. 
I am always happy when I get to visit with uh, uh, one of my favorite people, and that is Spencer Kimball, Emerson College, Emerson College Polling. And we always appreciate you uh, making time for us with our, with our many queries, uh, Spencer. Good to have you back. Brad, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let me – I want to get into, like, some of the poll numbers and the things that are moving out there across all the different polls that you guys are, are, are looking at. But I, I get questions from time to time. And I wanted to kind of float a couple of them towards you. None of these are weird or out of left field. I'm sure there are questions you get probably routinely from your students and people you're working with. And it's this. Um, Both sides ask the same question, right? How reliable are polls? And my standard answer is usually it's just a snapshot in time. It's 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 accurate to the point at which the poll was taken. But can you can you unpack that a little bit more? Because I think people uh, they they view these things as uh, as almost like alchemy. Well, that's for sure. Uh, we we actually have a whole section on media literacy, Brett, and that's exactly what we're trying to do is educate the public in how to read these polls because. Unlike that football game you watched over the weekend where it was, whatever, 45-42, and the team was winning by three points, Mm -hmm. in a poll, there's a margin of error. And if you think about it from a sports point of view, it would be like your point spread in that a team has so many points to cover on either side. Same thing with a margin of error. You look at that that poll that has Biden or Trump up 53-47 with a four-point margin of error, that means that 53 could actually be as low as 49, and the 47 could be as high as 51, in which case, statistically, there's no difference. Um, And that's why you saw a lot of those polls in 2016 that had Clinton up three, four points. They all melted down to Trump winning, and that's because they're within the polls' margin of error. And statistically, the polls really weren't wrong. But uh, when you look at it from an expectation, the expectation was Clinton would win because they were all lined up on one side, but each one has that, that range of scores. And it's important that when you hear these polls, uh, that the, the results, that you remember there's a range. And um, usually a score over like eight or nine becomes significant. And that's why those are the numbers that we've been looking at, at least nationally right now. So let me let me uh, hit you with a couple of other questions. Um why do a national poll if we know it's what is it 53 jurisdictions or states or I'm, I'm trying to do all the states plus dc plus puerto rico plus american samoa guam all that why would we do a national poll what does that tell us versus the the more localized polls in those in those different states and jurisdictions well when we don't need to do puerto rico or guam because they don't have any electoral votes uh, okay. dc does so they're 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 in the game um right. But generally speaking, you don't need to do a national poll. The reason why there's national polling is because national news organizations do it, and that's how they covered their story. So, uh, as you know, and we've learned five times in American history that it is based on the, the states. And so we have to look at each one of these state races. And in fact, in 2016, we did no national polling. Um, we started to do it afterwards. Uh, just to measure, because there is national attitude about, let's say, presidential approval. But at the end of the day, it's about the Electoral College, and you got to play within the rules of the game. So the state polling is what's most important. Generally speaking, if you win the national numbers, you generally do well in the states, but that's not, uh, you know, know, dispositive of uh, what's Mm going to happen. 
In in terms of the way these polls are constructed, to the to the limited extent that I understand them, obviously. Um, you have registered voters. You have likely voters. You you have when you've been on with us in the past, you've been you, you've stressed the importance of a, of a likely voter. Uh, but but registered voters are, are still uh, measured. Why would one go with a registered versus a, a likely? Well, early on in the election process, so maybe six months ago, people aren't really sure if they're going to get out and vote. And so you would maybe use a registered voter sample to say, OK, this is what it would look like if, you know, everybody who could vote, you know, wants to vote comes out. But then as the election creeps up, you realize that even last time, only about 58, 59 percent of eligible voters voted in the presidential election of 2016. That's you know two out of five will not vote. Um, and again, it's on a state by state basis. So we know states like Colorado, uh, Washington, the, the mail-in balloting states have a higher number than a state like Texas. Um, and so we got to keep that all in mind. When we get to the likely voter model, I think it's a more consistent pattern of people that really do vote. Um, generally, it helps the Republicans uh, that I find. And mm-hmm. so when pollsters all switch over, usually six weeks out, four to six weeks out, you'll see a shift of a tightening for Republicans that might not be a public opinion shift. That might be a methodological shift. And that's why we moved our, our likely voter model um, back in August. Mm-hmm. So we don't see that any of those changes as, as impacting our numbers. Visiting with uh, Spencer Kimball from Emerson College, Emerson Polling uh, is, is the, the Twitter feed you definitely want to uh, follow. We get these sample sizes, right? So there, there might be a poll that does 895 people or, or 1,232. Why, why is that sample size small? Would, wouldn't it be better to do a, a, a poll of you know, 15,000 or 30,000 people? Uh, would you get a more accurate picture in that regard? You, you would. The larger the sample size, the lower the margin of error. And so ideally, if you had a sample of, let's say, 100 people, you have a margin of error of almost like 10%. Mm-hmm. If you had a sample of 3,000 people, you'd have a margin of error of 1.6%. The real reason uh, you would, of course, like to lower it, but there is the, the diminishing returns. Um, mm-hmm. if, even if you have 5,000 people in your sample, you still have a margin of error of 1.2%, mm-hmm. which basically means anything within two points is still within your margin of error. Now, how does that impact the pollster is instead of a thousand people in your sample, now it's 5,000. The cost to collect the data is five times greater. And, and that's why. I'm sorry, Brett. No, I was going to say, and it'll take longer to get that data, right? So it won't be as fresh. You would. They, technology wise, we can collect that data pretty much as fast, um, you know, with different outlets. We can send text messages. We can send robocalls. We can send uh, online panels. Um, even a live phone bank could gear up. Uh, but yeah, there would be uh, potential staleness in the, in the data. But again, you, if a race is going to be on a knife's edge, mm-hmm. even a 5,000 person survey uh, poll isn't going to be able to be that exact. There's always going to be that range of scores within your results. Um, and that's why you usually see uh, anything larger and it's about a thousand people in statewide and national polling. And that gives you a 3% margin of error. 
Okay, here's 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 one. I'm sure you've gotten this one in the past. Um, it, it goes a little bit like this. Why are they oversampling Democrats? I've never been polled. I'm a Republican. They didn't poll me. Uh, th- this is ridiculous. They're only oversampling the Democrats to, to make us look bad and to demoralize us. What's the uh, what's the response to the objection there, Spencer? One is always answer your phone and uh, take some more polls. But um, <laughs> but what the truth is, uh, we know uh, we can look at the ideological breakup of, of the of the district or the state. Um, one of the problems that you'll see is in a state like Alabama, a state like uh, maybe Michigan, where you don't have you don't register by voter by party. You just register to vote. Um, and so there is no real party affiliate uh, registration. So you don't know, you know, a Democrat in Alabama, a self-proclaimed Democrat might really be a Republican in another part in, in another area. Same thing um, up in Michigan. Um, because you don't register by by party, uh, it's hard to tell what the party registration or affiliation is in those states. And that's why you'll sometimes hear those those um, complaints. One of the things that we do to rectify that is look at, we ask people how they voted in previous elections. And that way we have a better sense of if our sample is representative of at least the population that came out to vote in 2016 or in 2018. And if it is representative of that population, we feel pretty comfortable that the results will will be consistent. Okay, uh, f- final question about the methodologies, and then I'll, I'll ask you a couple things about the, the political process that we're watching play out here. Uh, you're very generous with your time. Uh, we have suburbs. We have exurbs. We also have people who are mass migrating in different directions because of COVID and shutdowns and things like that. How, how different do you expect the uh, the maps to look. I mean, it's no secret that a lot of people have fled the state of New York or the or the Northeast to go down to Florida or the Carolinas where I'm sitting. Um, how much of an impact is that going to have on the uh, on the makeup of these electoral uh, these states in the Electoral College? I think it's going to have a, a, a large makeup because just like the New England region, we've lost a 10 percent of our population in the last year. Uh, in the last four years, we've lost about three percent, uh, three tenths of a percent. Same thing in the Midwest. The population that's growing the most is the, the South. Uh, the West is growing slightly. The South is growing uh, much faster. And then you have uh, so to your point, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia. These are areas that are now seeing these population shifts. And it will all come into focus in 2022 when they do the redistricting. Obviously, we're doing the census now. And all of a sudden, people are going, whoa, look at all these people in Texas and Florida, because they're going to pick up two to three congressional seats. Uh, New York's going to lose a congressional seat. So these things are all happening underneath us. And to your point, uh, that turnout model is a really tough nut to crack, because not only are we looking at population shifts, you know, natural, but because of the coronavirus, we have another influx of population shifts. And then we got to figure out who's going to vote, uh, because now we're voting by mail, and mail voting is a different obstacle for, for voters. Remember, it's not just you, you put it in the mailbox and, and you're done voting. Right. Um, I'm an election law attorney. Uh, I remember <laughs> the one the ballots that you can argue the most on are those mail ballots, because people make lots of mistakes about signatures and process. And so... It'll be interesting to see how many of those mail ballots come in and then how many are are legal. As an elect as an election attorney, are you worried about the harvesting process that, that takes place now? It, regarding the ballots? 
Yes. Yeah. Um, the whole process I'm concerned about because yeah. having worked as an attorney deployment, you go to these 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 election uh, poll locations and you know the people working there are generally older or very young. Um, and because of that, you have a lot of inexperience and potential for people to intimidate uh, lots of things that can happen at polling locations. And that's a concern is that these locations are going to be understaffed um, and potentially overwhelmed on Election Day. And um, and remember, they're going to have a big stack of ballots as well to deal with. So there's a lot of lot of issues and, and it's all on a state by state basis. So we'll be watching you know, the states and the counties and seeing how they perform. A uh, final question. It's a two part final question for you as you're as you're looking at this landscape here. Um, n- number one, is it safe to assume the people that are exiting the Northeast and the Midwest for places like Florida and the Carolinas and Texas, uh, even Tennessee, we could throw in there, or Georgia. I- is it likely that these are progressives coming in to change the makeup of those states? Or is it more likely that it's conservatives bringing those sorts of uh, orientations on e- economics and, and government uh, regulation uh, heading in? Or, or is there just is it impossible to know that based on based on the population shifting? Well, those are great questions because um, those will obviously have local impacts. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I what I can see is that like the Hispanic minority population, those shifts are, are fairly easy to see because they are identified in the the American Community Survey that's conducted every year. So you can see that Arizona, Texas, Florida, those are going to grow. Uh, Georgia in that Hispanic population. Um, the question will be is in my I think much of the migration is going to has been impacted from job loss. Right. Uh, if you look at Michigan and Detroit in particular, I think that that um, automobile bubble burst a decade ago created a job loss. And those folks moved down. Those folks, I would say, are more uh, Democratic voters, probably two to three hundred thousand. Democratic voters mm-hmm. fled the state, and that's why you're looking at Michigan, a state that was a big surprise in 2016. Um, but that was, I think, fallout from the the auto automobile bailout, of, you know, the last decade. Um, and so, yeah, you do have those population shifts, and that's what people are going to be looking for. And that's why we've been looking at early voting data uh-huh. um, to try to see if new voters are coming in or if we're simply just uh, the same voters. They just happen to be voting early in which case we'll still have the normal 58, 59% uh, turnout. Or if we get a 70% turnout, now we have a, 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 a really a, a different electorate that comes to the polls, and that could create a, a big surprise on election night. So there's a possibility that early voters, and, and, and this is a very ugly word to use, but the, the, the parties could be cannibalizing their own turnout anyways, just by voting earlier. It's not that you're generating or creating new voters, right? Exactly. And so if that's the case, then we're, it's going to look very consistent with 2016. The question is, is are there these new voters coming in, uh, in these population centers that have shifted, uh, the, let's say a whole slew of New Yorkers stayed in, in Florida this, this year, instead right. of going back up to New York, is that going to be a large enough vote? Um, will they switch their votes? And so those are some of the moving parts that uh, makes elections so exciting. And, uh, you know, why we will talk on November 4th. Because, yeah. 
who knows what November 3rd is going to look like with all of this happening. <laughs> We may be talking on Thanksgiving, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, depending on how we'll always come. be talking. That that's the key. That's right. Our lines of communication. <laughs> Spencer Kimball, incredibly generous with your time. We took a super deep dive, but you know these are the questions that people are asking, and I don't know what I'm talking about. And I figured I'll talk to the expert because you're the expert. Well, these are really important questions, and in polling literacy, Brad, mm-hmm. is so underreported, and I'm really glad that we've been able to take the time to inform the audience of how to read these poll results, and that way we have proper expectations going into the election. Absolutely. Uh, Spencer Kimball, Emerson College Polling. Uh, you can find him uh, over at Emerson Polling on Twitter, and, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be visiting a lot in these next 20, uh, what, 24, 25 days. Appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Devious Motives with Brett Winterbull. Monday, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor, we're going to trial. Simone Misick is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench. Everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, Monday at 9, 8 central on CBS.